Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Ben Wong. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More Books, where we try to enact as verbal spark notes to present an interesting book that had a great impact on us and trying to accelerate the learning process. For this month, we are reviewing the book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich by Remit Seti. It is a book of compacted financial literacy that is presented through the digestible form of big pictures on what truly matters and six-week action steps that could truly transform your finances and more importantly, your relationship with money. It is a book of financial psychology rather than a typical budgeting book, according to the author. Remit is a New York Times bestseller and he runs one of the most subscribed and successful financial blogs with millions of subscribers. So we plan to distill down the biggest takeaways from the book as well as paraphrase some of Ramit's most important ideas. We're also going to share our experiences and perspectives around money, both before we read this book as well as after. And personally, I found this book to be the most impactful finance book that I've read in all five years of my finance and accounting education. And we really can't recommend it more because you can finish it in a week and it's jam-packed with really tangible information that lets you completely transform your finances in a six-week action plan. So Ramit begins the book by suggesting that the readers really reflect on what a rich life means to them. So unlike most financial books that stress the importance of sticking to a budget and saving on small items like coffee, he makes the argument that a rich life is subjective. So person to person, whatever you value, that's what your rich life considers. So it's not about, you know, your annual income. It's about what you're spending your money on and how you're utilizing your money to really align with your values. So personally, before reading this book, when I was in college, this was kind of a unconscious idea that I was living out, but I was creating a rich life through spending my money on my friends going out with them, enjoying times with them, as well as music concerts and festivals. So most of my money was going towards those things because it was important to me at the time. And I was penny pinching by eating rice and tuna fish and chicken breast for most days of the week. So not spending money on food, spending money on, you know, alcohol with my friends, as well as music concerts and festivals. Now travel, you know, getting out of my comfort zone, seeing new places and really using money to experience new things and learn new perspectives from the places I travel. So it's definitely been an evolution of before reading this book and after reading this book. So really figuring out what's important to you, what you want to spend your money on, and then saving as much as possible on the things that don't matter to you. Absolutely. And I think it is extremely important to define what rich means because that is in the title and context always creates content. So Remit defines wealth such as this. 
he talks about wealth isn't about your annual income. It's about your consistent action and small wins over time and the accumulation of savings and investments for the time being. And he gives this shocking example that, did you know one in four people who make over $100,000, which is six figures, they're still living in this paycheck to paycheck mindset and the reality, according to a SunTrust survey. And just like what Aiden talked about, rich is strictly subjective and what matters varies to case by case, to person to person. And in the book, he gives an example of his friend who spends a staggering amount of $21,000 on just going out every year. On the surface, it seems that's ridiculous. But the reality is his friend, he doesn't care about the size of the apartment or vacation, the type of car, and he makes a very healthy six figures. And what that means is he's living in, in this tiny apartment without any decor. He doesn't have time for vacation because he's working a lot. And he takes public transit because he lives in a busy and major city. And because he works a lot, what is his priority? Eating out and social events. So for him, being a rich is aligning his social currency, just like Aiden's example of traveling, you know, or spending money with his friends, spending money on alcohol because that mattered to him. And that to me also mattered in college. And now I also prioritize traveling and eating out and spending quality time with my girlfriends or my friends. And your rich changes based on the stage of life you're in. However, you must first define what rich means to you and plan accordingly. But the point is this. If you want to live a rich life, create a game plan. Create a structured plan and know what you want and live by that so that you can live out whatever definition you may have for that rich means. Yeah, thanks for mentioning the plan because that was kind of one of the biggest takeaways from this book of what he calls a conscious spending plan. So he gives five steps of how to allocate your money based on what's important to you and how to create a rich life. So first step being do the math and automate your finances. So what money's coming in, what money has to go out and setting that up. He gives a lot of details on how to automate your finances, which is why we'd recommend checking out the book. But his whole idea is to systematize your finances so you're not spending hours and hours trying to figure out where your money goes. If you set it all up ahead of time, it can systematically come out of your bank accounts to pay where it needs to go. The second step of his conscious spending plan is allocate your fixed costs. So that's usually 50 to 60% of your take-home pay, including your rent, your utilities, your insurance. A lot of people say don't spend more than a third on your rent, which is something that I certainly try and live by when I've been searching for apartments. So fixed costs should be a bulk of the money that you're taking home and really automating that of having the rent come out on the first of every month, your utility bill automatically pay on the 15th or whatever your due date is and really making that as automated as possible because those costs are inherently fixed they're repetitive month to month and as much as you can automate that that reduces the stress of paying for them he then argues that 10 percent steps three and four should go to your investments and savings account so a lot of times that's your 401k a roth ira and that can also be set up to be deducted right from your pay stub. Typically that, you know, you work with your company to have that automatically withdrawn. And one thing that he also talks about is maximizing your contribution from your pay stub. So most companies will match your 401k investment. And if you select 
6% rather than 3%, that's automatically an additional 3%. That's basically free money. There's no reason to contribute anything less than the maximum because it's basically money that you're signing away. And your savings, that's really the most important thing. And he gives a lot of tangible advice of how to do this. So whether that's vacations, big gifts, a down payment for a house, which is personally what my savings account is for right now, or even an emergency fund, he recommends taking 10%, 5 to 10%, however often you get paid, and putting that money into a tangible savings account. And then lastly, I think the most important for what people want to be spending their money on is guilt-free spending money. So like we said, those are the things that are important to you, whether that's you like going out, you like traveling, you like going to a fancy gym, whatever it is that is important to you, 20 to 35% should be spent guilt-free because you're budgeting that money into your spending plan and already taking care of the important things, your fixed costs, your investments, and your savings. Yeah, and if you like to research or do a little bit more about more detailed conscious spending plan, he recommends Googling 80-20 analysis or known as a Pareto law. So monthly fixed costs should be about 60%. Long-term investment should be about 10%. And saving goals about another 10%. And the remaining 20% is about your enjoyment money, which is 20%. So look up 80 and 20 analysis on Google if you're interested or pick up this book. And the whole idea about having a conscious spending plan because he rebuttals the idea that being consciously spending is being cheap. Those are fundamentally two different ideas. Because being conscious of what you want is A, you know what you want and B, spending money accordingly about on what you want. So it's the idea or the thesis and he mentions in the book where you need to spend 10x. That means increase your spending by 10 times or however times on what you absolutely love and cut 100 times, 100x on what you don't care. It's a direct quote from his book. Spend extravagantly on the things you love and cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. And that goes back to the idea that Aidan alluded to where he was spending dimes and pennies on his meals because he didn't care about that. So he spent minimum amount on just broccolis, chicken breast and tuna and rice and he spent extravagantly on concerts and traveling and drinking and socializing because social currency mattered to him and also to me during the college years that was a different stage in our lives and now we're consciously spending money on traveling and trying out new spots and restaurants because expanding our horizon of experiences expanding and accumulating so much horizontal and vertical experiences to us matters more so we're consciously spending more money on that and we both still religiously meal prep every single week to cut down on costs we don't care about. I don't care about my car. I don't care about my clothes. I haven't spent money on clothes in a long, long time. However, I've spent a very great considerate amount of money on traveling at least three times a year. I just got back from Costa Rica. Aiden just got back from a road trip with his girlfriends. And these things really make us happy. And we want to maximize those happiness, maximize those utilities. And that is a whole motto and the mission statements and the thesis about our second point creating a rich life how first start by creating a conscious spending plan and follow that and that leads us into our third point actionable steps it is not realistic just to live our life on the clouds it's not realistic to live on cloud nine all the time it's not realistic to have all fluffs and no discipline and that reminds me of a famous quote by 
the famous former Navy SEAL commander Jocko Wilnick. Discipline equals your freedom. To live the life of rich life, to live the life of what you love, you have to instill the certain level of discipline. How do you do that? By creating actionable steps. What can I do today? The way to get rich is starting small. Now, you don't want to be rich and then start. And I'm sure Aiden could explain a little bit more about the structure and how we can implement that from the ideas demonstrated by the author. Yeah, awesome point, Ben. Ramit also includes an example in the very beginning of the book that really ties in and made it very relatable for myself and I'm sure loads of listeners by comparing fitness and your finances. He makes the argument that most people don't track what they eat. Similarly, most people don't track what they spend. Also, we eat more than we know and overestimate the amount of calories we're burning and underestimate the amount of calories we're consuming. Similarly, we overestimate the amount of money that we're saving and underestimate the amount of money that we're spending. So this was a really concrete example that made me examine or allowed me to reframe my approach with money because similarly with fitness, how you counted things and really held yourself accountable with finances, you have to really track your spending track what you're saving, and create a system to really enhance your financial wealth. So he gives weekly action steps broken down into six different weeks. And one of the first few, which are very easy, can be done within an hour, are open a savings account, optimize your credit cards, and check your credit score. So open a savings account is one of the first things I did using the online accounts that he recommends. So one of the ones that he mentions is Capital One 360 that pays a 1.7% return on a savings account, which is absurdly high. Uh, This past week, I told my grandpa that I opened a nearly 2% savings account, and he was in shock that that exists right now. But just because there's so many more options, so many online banks trying to attract the customers, you can really take advantage of great opportunities if you're just informed to find those. So I went from not having a savings, just keeping my savings in a checking account, earning who knows how low, to nearly a 2% return on a recommended savings account. Absolutely. And I think just one more thing to mention, Ryman argues the importance of opening a separate savings account, in this case, online high yielding account, because when you separate savings from your checkings, it is a human psychology, which is a great bulk in the chunk of this book, where once your checking and savings are separate, you're going to view savings truly as a savings. And that's the reason why we both independently open a high yield savings through the Capital 360. And he also talks about the importance of checking credit score. In the book, he re- recommends two sources, myfigo.com, it comes with a small fee, but it gives you the most detailed analysis. And the second one is annualcreditreport.com. It has one free report once a year, and then you have to pay for the rest of them. And the reason why it's so imperative to check in your credit as soon as possible, because it has a long and potentially everlasting impact on your current wealth and your future savings, and such as buying a house. In this book, it talks about human psychology, but also focusing on the big wins not saving $1.50 here and there for matchas or coffee. And the example he gives is this. On a $200,000 30-year mortgage, if your FICO score or if your credit score is 760 to 850 range, 
the APR is 4.279. That means you pay about $355,000. And if you're below that, between 660 to 679, you pay 4.892%, which means you pay an insane amount $382,000. Those are a lot of numbers, but to simplify, the difference of a credit score of 760 and 660, which is only 100 difference, is the amount of between $25,000 and $30,000, which leads into my example. I've known that I had a high credit score about 760 about last December, and I don't need to check my credit score on a day to day. And the timing is so mysterious. And this is the reason why I believe everything has its own timing. The timing is that it was time for me to read this book. It's timing is that it was time for us to review this book. And so I decided to check my credit score and I haven't done so since last year of 2018. And my score went from 780 to 640. And I was like, what is going on? So I learned the trick of checking and receiving my free report for this year. So I requested it and I got the analysis. It found out that there is a negatory public record on my credit score. So per the recommendation of this book and Remit, after getting my credit score, I'd set to do an inquiry and I called the Figo company and I realized there was a medical bill of $2,400 on my credit, which dropped my 150 points because I didn't pay the bill. And this bill was overdue for over a year. And I asked for the specifics and I found out that this was the bill from when I was went to ambulance or ER about a year and a half ago. So a long story short, when I first came to Philadelphia, I went out to you know drink and socialize downtown Philadelphia and it was my first weekend and I'm a social butterfly and that even gets worse than when I'm drunk. And you know, I wandered myself into an alleyway and I was actually jumped. And this person knocked me out into unconsciousness and he took my wallet and all my valuable belongings. And so the next morning I woke up in the ER and you know, the nurse, you know, woke me up and I thought to myself, oh boy, I must have drank or I must have passed out on the alleyway. I must have drank too much and fell asleep and maybe a bystander called me in because of the concern. The shocking reality was that I was actually jumped by this person in the alleyway and he stripped of everything and I was bleeding. I had some minor head trauma from hitting the curb from falling down, but because I never got the medical bill because I didn't have any insurance. And this happened such a long time ago, they, after, the, after they released me, I signed some paperwork and I was just let go my way. But I, what I didn't realize was I was essentially John Doe in the system because I didn't have an insurance card. I didn't have my social security, I didn't have my ID. So I just forgot about it and went on my way because I definitely suffered some memory losses during that weekend and I couldn't remember everything even when I reflect back on it. So back to the current day after I read this book and I realized that I dropped 150 points. So. According to the book, this is the cool thing about this book. He doesn't just present macro thesis. He doesn't just talk about these big, pretty sentences. He gives you specific action steps you can immediately implement. And one of them, he talks about you need to negotiate and call up your insurance company or your credit company and start implementing and trying to negotiate fees. So for me, I realized I never got the medical bill because the hospital didn't have my correct information. And during my subconscious or unconscious state, I don't know the type of information I presented, so maybe some of them might have been misinformation or maybe I just completely forgot about it. 
So I'm currently in the process of disputing that inquiry and trying to get through my insurance company, trying to get some of that money rebated and trying to reduce the amount. So, and of course it took me years to get to 780 of credit score. And now it hurts a lot. And of course it affected me severely that I dropped below 700, which affected my ability to actually request for a travel back credit card, according to the next point that we're going to talk about and one of the other things to recommend in the book. But the whole point of that story is, of course, you know, A, stick to your friends when you're drinking, you know, don't be by yourself in an alleyway. But more importantly, check your credit score as soon as possible, because whether it's a mortgage example or my example, credit score can literally save you tens and thousands of money down the road. So check your credit score now and implement the three of the six action steps we covered in point three. And I promise you, your finances will be transformed. Wow, thanks for sharing, Ben. I know you told me that story when it initially happened, but I'm glad that you were able to share it with our listeners and are now in the process of getting it taken care of. So this is gonna bring us into the recommendation of credit cards, which is one of the things that I guess I'm the most experienced in of the things that he talks about because I've been playing the credit card game for five to six years, pretty much my whole college and adult life because I've been studying accounting and finance for so long. Um, I took five years of accounting classes, have a master's degree in it. I've realized that there's tremendous money that you can save just by utilizing credit cards and kind of doing your research, playing their games and spending consciously within the rules and boundaries. So Ramit lays out five important rules that I've always tried to embrace, but he really solidifies them down into tangible takeaways. So first, most importantly, just pay them off, pay off your credit cards regularly. And I'd even argue the a next step of that, of putting all your expenses on your credit cards, excluding rent or anything that really needs a cash payment. But if you're putting things on credit cards, then you're getting the rewards point. As long as you're tracking your spending and paying them off regularly, it's almost free money you're leaving on the table. Even to the extent Um, I know all of my friends probably know this. Whenever we go out to a big brunch, say 10 to 12 people, I'll volunteer to put the entire bill on my credit card and get Venmo payments back. So I'm not spending any more money. I'm spending the money that I have on the brunch, but I'm getting the $500 bill worth of rewards on my credit card. So really utilizing the credit cards, optimizing them, as Ramit says, to maximize your savings and the potential rewards from your credit cards. So one of the things he mentions is fees and the APR or the percent interest that you pay of cards. And I think these two components are what drive a lot of the hesitation and resistance behind using cards. But in this day and age, there's so many cards out there that you can easily either find a card without fees and a low interest rate or request a elimination of fees or a lower interest rate. And in fact, there's loads of 0% interest rates out there that really allow you to spend without paying any interest. So a few of the ones that I've used are 18 months with 0% interest and a whole first year without interest. And you can actually transfer the balances from card to card. It's not a great habit to be into, but if you really need to, you can take a balance of an existing card and transfer it into a 0% interest card 
and not pay interest on it if your credit score is high enough, which again goes back to the importance of maintaining a high credit score. So yeah, with the Aiden's examples and what the book talks about, it is very important to keep your credit score high because that comes with an array of benefits. And a couple of few things that the book talks about and from our experience that helps to maintain your high credit score or to get to a high credit score is A, keep your cards active. Once you open a credit line through a bank, you don't want to close them because it seems A, suspicious, means maybe you don't have the ability to pay them off. So it is important to keep them active so that you have lines and sources of credit card avenues to continually help you build that credit score. And B, request more credit. You know, every time when you first get the credit card, most people start with $1,500. But of course, the balance and the ratio between spend to borrow, it also determines your credit score. So once you hit a certain threshold, it's important for you to go a step above and call your credit card company and request it. Tell them, hey, I've been a loyal customer for X amount of years. And you'd like to request or expansion of your credit line because of your loyalty, because you're consistently with paying. And once you have a, a large line, you can spend more money, which helps it or accelerate your process of building your credit score and thrive with points. Yeah, absolutely. The utilization rate's really important, which is what you were talking about. So the total amount of credit you have due and the total credit you have amount available is your utilization rate. So having more in your denominator, so more lines of credit, more available credit, gives you a lower utilization rate, which often leads to a higher credit score. So that's something that I've definitely tried to embrace. I keep all of my past lines of credit open. Everything stays there just to have a large balance to later improve the credit score. And then the last idea is really to just embrace the fact that you can get absurd travel rewards, absurd points, and utilize them in incredible ways. So personally, I haven't paid for a plane ticket in probably five years. I've used all of my credit card points just from, like I said, at one point I was putting rent on a credit card and then paying it right off. I was putting large bills on just to have those points and then spend them to go fly wherever I may be doing. So if you really play the games, read the fine print and hold yourself accountable to paying it off every single month, you can find yourself with some great rewards that do a lot of good. So this leads me into my story or personal experience with credit cards that I think really illustrates the interesting dichotomy between the stressors and the benefits of credit cards. So it's definitely been a bit of a stress because I have had a large credit card balance for basically my whole adult life stemming from my college experiences. So because I do have the accounting background, I understand that debt isn't inherently bad if you're not paying interest on it. And I realized that there were a lot of opportunities and experiences that I would have to miss out on if I weren't able to pay for them right away. Taking the key example is my 2016 backpacking trip around Europe. So for my friend's graduation, we hopped on a plane and did 16 cities in 21 days. And I didn't have the money for it whatsoever. I had probably $400 cash coming out of that spring college semester. And this trip was going to run us five to six grand between, you know, the hostels, the eating out, the whole nine. But I realized that time was the thing that was important to me. At no point was I going to have four weeks to just travel throughout the summer, but I would eventually have the money back. So 
in this situation, I ended up putting the entire trip on a credit card, recognizing that I wasn't going to pay interest. I was going to pay it off in the future down the road, but I was never going to have this time back. So it's an interesting experience to reflect on because by no means am I encouraging the audience to go $6,000 in credit card debt, but I am trying to highlight the benefits that can be found with proper research, true accountability, and system utilization. Since reading Ramit's book, I've consolidated all of my debts, put out a conscious spending plan of how I'm going to pay out this uh, remaining debt. So the systems and automation element, both around credit cards and your spending, are something that both Ben and I have spent a ton of time doing following reading this book. So we would encourage everybody to do their research, find a credit card that suits their needs, whether that's increased travel rewards or a 0% interest, and really utilizing it for the things that they need and maintaining accountability over that process. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing, man. And yeah, that's a pretty cool story about how you decided to borrow from your future income because for you, you prioritize the scarcity of time versus scarcity of money because you know the income will come in the future. And I just want to throw a caveat into that is we're definitely not encouraging for you to just accumulate unlimited amount of credit debt like what Aiden talked about. And I want to bring up about this idea and the psychology of invisible scripts. We all know what scripts mean, but what is what are invisible scripts? In this book, he mentions the idea that most Americans, they're desensitized and they're normalized the idea that debt is okay. It's okay to have debt. And but what Aiden is doing effectively and powerfully so is that he has came up with a game plan to resolve those debt. Of course, those debts served into a great purpose back in four, three years ago, four years ago, when he wanted to backpack 16 cities in 21 days. But now he's paying the price of having a debt but it's not being overwhelmed. He has a concrete plan to pay for those debt. So debt is okay if there's no interest, but it's also okay, not okay to be succumb and just be normalized to your debt. Pay off those debt if you can. How? Come up with a plan. Follow the steps that we talk about in this episode and talk about what Remit effectively in the book. So in the book, Remit talks about the goal is not to research every last corner to decide where the money will come from. It's action. Figure out how much debt you have. Decide how you want to pay it down. Negotiate your rates and get started. You can always fine-tune your plan and amount later. However, it is important and it is a non-negotiable to have a game plan and to start deducting the negative balances in your accounts. And all those examples and our stories lead to our final takeaway for this book and this episode. A couple ideas. The first is there is no need to rely on the others to manage or invest your money to get rich. In the book, Remit gives us this incredible example I've never heard before. But yeah, it's like the idea that, you know, financial experts don't mean they actually have the expertise. And the example he gives is in 2001, Frederick Brochet, a researcher at the University of Broderick's, ran a study that shocked everyone in the wine industry. He invited 57 wine experts to taste test a red wine and a white wine. All of those 57 so-called wine experts described each wine accordingly and sent praises, such as, oh, this red wine is spicy, it's fragrant, it's deep, 
and you know different praises for the red and wine respectively you know what the reality was shockingly both wines were exactly the same they were both white wine and the red wine was tinted with food coloring what does that say about the so-called wine expert what does that say about these so-called financial experts they can have these all big talks and all these pretty languages and fluff it up to you know master lack of experiences or so-called their backgrounds and expertise but ultimately Remit argues in the book that expertise is about results did you know between 2000 and 2018 what's the best stock you know if you were to ask that question most people will guess google i mean that's what i would have guessed it but in the book it talks about if you invest a thousand dollars in 2008 then in 10 years you'd have gotten three thousand dollars I mean, yo, that is a three times investment. Great return, of course. Google has been a great stock. However, he talks about if you invested in Domino's, the Domino's, one of my favorite, you know, actually pizza franchise, the $1,000 in 2008 would have turned into $18,000 in 2018. That is 18 times investment. I would have never came out with that idea. And most experts, or I've never seen any Wall Street Journal or anything online on the news talk about Domino's as a great stock option. But the whole idea is a person's expertise doesn't mean they're going to deliver results. Yeah, so you don't have to rely on these so-called experts. Just rely on yourself and just create a system and automate your finances so that money works for you. Yeah, all those examples really just illustrate the way he wrote this book. For me, it totally flipped a lot of the ideas I have about money on my head. Um, it's very contrary to a lot of the financial books that are out there these days, but it's a lot more simplistic. It's a lot more actionable. And really, he just makes the argument of like anything, whether it's fitness, a new book, a new job, or finances, just start small, but most importantly, start now. That's one of my biggest takeaways is I was guilty of this. Uh, Over the summer, I said, all right, I want to enjoy this summer. I'll start worrying about my finances in September so I don't have to get stressed out about how many times I'm eating or drinking out. But the most important thing is starting now and building over time. So by no means are we saying we have financial literacy figured out. There's always so much more to learn. And personally, I still have lots of debt to pay off. But We've now educated ourselves and are trying to continue learning and more importantly, sharing this knowledge with you guys so that we can transform our relationship with money and really create a sustainable, rich life. Yeah, very well said. And at the end of the day, it comes down to your actions because only you can serve yourself. However, we strongly, strongly recommend pick up this book by Remit and learn how to be rich Define what rich means to you. Learn how to build a rich life and live out a life that you truly desire by changing your relationship with money. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.